Hello and welcome to the Uncover Up. I'm one of your co-hosts, Nathan Radke, and with me today in the bunker is, of course, no one. This episode is being recorded in April of 2020, and no one is a very popular house guest these days. However, joining me remotely from an undisclosed location, about 15 minutes walk north of the bunker, is none other than the man, the myth, the legend, Dr. Lee Kunle. How are you doing today, Lee? Hi. I'm doing okay. Thanks, Nate. Uh, I do miss hanging out at the bunker, though. I miss doing this in person. And I am sorry, I guess it's nice to be able to say this at the beginning of the episode, I am sorry for the reduced sound quality since COVID has forced these restrictions upon us. I think we've Um, all gotten so used to, we hear that kind of voice now more than we hear an actual human voice. It's going to be strange when we eventually hang out in person again and we remember, oh right, (laughs) you don't normally sound all glitchy and laggy. Yeah. So... What are we talking about today? Because I, I'm, I have no idea. I'm yeah. completely naive. I just I sort of like, sprung this I, one on everybody. I, yeah, so I've just been invited in to learn as our audience is going to learn about a conspiracy I've never heard of. Okay, well, this one, today we're going to look at a conspiracy claim that basically has it all. It, it's like a greatest hits album. Just on, on side A of this LP, we've got the U.S. military. <laughs> we've got Mysterious Figures. We've got shadowy government officials. We've got body horror, just like so people know that there's going to be some gross stuff coming up later. We have some tragedy, unfortunately. Uh, We have not just one, but two alien civilizations. We've got time travel. We've got teleportation. And we've got a barroom brawl. Nice. This is going to be fun. That's what we've got coming up, because today we're discussing something called the Philadelphia Experiment. Now, it took me a while before I figured out the best way to approach this. The alleged events in question occurred in 1943, and also, depending on how you look at it, maybe also concurrently 1983, because time travel stories are always tricky to get into like a well-behaved chronological order. But I think that this story really begins in the 1950s with a man named Morris Jessup. So to get into this, we're going to start with his story. Morris Jessup was born in 1900 at the dawn of the 20th century. Now, I find that fact in itself just kind of amazing, because anyone born in 1900 who lived at least for 45 years would have shown up in a world in which many intelligent people thought that heavier-than-air flight was impossible, and then 45 years later you would live to see a world in which giant four-engine bomber planes could destroy entire cities in a matter of seconds. And that's just in one generation. It's an extraordinary time. Jessup received a master's in astronomy, uh, and as somebody with an interest in the stars, he picked up on the UFO phenomenon of the late 1940s and early 1950s. Because, of course, as we've talked about before, this is a time when Kenneth Arnold claims to see strange objects moving like saucers, skipping over a lake, flying over the mountains of Washington State. Of course, Captain Mantell and his fighter plane were sent to intercept a UFO over Kentucky, only to have both Mantell and his plane come crashing back down to the ground. Projects Grudge and Blue Book were formed by the U.S. government to investigate and sometimes discredit UFO sightings. And, of course, the movie theaters were filled with stories of saucer attacks and alien infiltrators. Like, this is basically the golden age of UFOs. I'm on board. I'm listening. I love it. In 1955, Jessup writes a book called The Case for the UFO. And it's published by Saucerian Press, which was owned and run by a guy called Gray Barker. Now, that name should be familiar to you because when we talked in the Mothman episode, Gray Barker was that kind of prankster, hoaxster guy. In that episode, we also discussed a writer by the name of Charles Fort, who, of course, you recall, who in 1919 wrote The Book of the Damned, which was basically an encyclopedia of strange and unexplained events that Fort argued were being ignored by mainstream scientists. Well, Jessup, the astronomer, is heavily influenced by Fort's ideas. In fact, I've read The Case for the UFO, and a lot of it is, is simply rehashing material Fort had already gone over, weird weather events, vanished civilizations, ancient pyramids, things falling from the sky, and so on and so forth. There's a lot of good books written in this time period that contained solid research and information about the UFO phenomenon. And this is something we were just talking about before we started the podcast, that we're thinking maybe we should do an episode where we talk about some of the books and sources that we use. Yeah. I have a, I'm just in the midst of three of them right now, and it's tons of fun. So I think that would be a fun episode to do in the future. Yeah, because there's some really good resources available about like taking UFOs very seriously as a phenomenon. 
this. I mean, we've mentioned Ruppelt so many times. Yeah. We really need to have like a, a picture with a, a halo and wings or something yeah. for, for our podcast. I can't mention him enough. So there's some really good books about the UFO phenomenon, a lot of which were written in the 1950s. Having read this one by Jessup, I have to say, I don't think this is one of those books that's really well written. I mean, Jessup was very sincere in his beliefs, but he was extremely clumsy in his reasoning. Uh, The book contained very little evidence, lots of speculation, lots of leaps in logic, lots of hasty conclusions. Uh, It's interesting, as I was reading it, it seemed to provide me with little truth about the case for the UFO, but lots of evidence that Jessup was a man who was clearly impacted by the, the strange and terrifying times he found himself in. Uh, much of the book reads like a combination of Cold War fears of nuclear annihilation and Cold War wish fulfillment that a, a powerful entity from space would come down and save us from ourselves. I mean, he describes the planet Earth in the book as, quote, this war-weary, heartsick, and bedraggled planet, unquote. And in another chapter, he asks, quote, Should we be astonished if these space dwellers are preparing to prevent a few fear-stricken human beings from blowing up another planet, perhaps the only one which offers supplies and haven to space navigators? If we are incapable of the self-control necessary for our preservation, are we to assume that superior neighbors will permit their safety to be imperiled by our immature behavior? Unquote. Mm. Like this kind of wish fulfillment back then in the 1950s, which was the first time in human history when we had the capacity to wipe out all life on Earth. A lot of people were obviously quite moved and horrified by that, by that new possibility. And this question of, were we smart enough to deal with what we had made? That's a worry, uh, I think, that's is still with us. Because especially if we think about this stuff, within the context of, of human existence on Earth, a lot of the stuff that they were worried about was new and remains new today because it's only been 50, 100 years since we've developed a lot of this stuff. And I'm wondering, and this is just a, ten, a tangential thought that struck me as you were talking about this literature as wish fulfillment. And I hope that I'm not saying anything out of turn, but I wonder if in certain uh, sociological secular readings, what we get with the UFO phenomenon kind of replaces what you would have had in an earlier discourse around angels. You know, that there are these going to be these mighty beings that intercede on our behalf because we're clearly not capable of doing it. And whatever doomsday scenario is currently playing itself out from the, you know, the, the plague to the Thirty Years' War to whatever else might have been going on seemed like the end of the world or, you know, close to it. I think that's absolutely true. In the 20th century, as we moved to a more scientific viewpoint, uh, we were becoming increasingly secular, there was still a need for a kind of spirituality. There was still a kind of need for feeling like there was something greater than us. And in a a secular, non-religious sense, I think a lot of people did look towards aliens, maybe to replace that feeling of being looked after from above. I think that's absolutely true. Well, I was going to ask, because I don't know anything, and I don't know where this is going, where we've gotten to is Morris Jessup writes a bad book about UFOs that might have more to do with him and him trying to make sense of the world than it does with explaining some of the facts that uh, are on the ground. I'm dying to know what's going on. Like, where where are you taking me? I mean, <laughs> this, this kind of wish fulfillment, the reason that I think that it's probably wish fulfillment is it's so common in that time period. Uh, If you look at science fiction movies of the 1950s, which I absolutely adore, I could just watch those all day, you've got excellent films like 1951's The Day the Earth Stood Still. You've got less excellent but still extremely enjoyable under certain circumstances films like 1959's Plan 9 from Outer Space. And they all have plots in which aliens are concerned about our increasingly destructive capabilities, and they come down to Earth to try to put a stop to the arms race. And so when I read Jessup's work, I just, I see it as part of that tradition from that time period. Now, he is making a bunch of claims. He argues that Fort, who, who listed in like an encyclopedic fashion all of the weird things that fell to the sky and all of the, the strange unexplained phenomenon, Jessup argues that much of Fort's unexplained phenomena could be explained as the results of manipulation by intelligent aliens from their spaceships. He argues that those spaceships inhabit the area between the Earth and the Moon. Uh, he says... Uh, and I'll want, I want to get your reaction on this one. Jessup argues that sometimes those alien ships come to Earth, for example, the Mantell incident. Huh. Okay. 
that's interesting. I mean, I always love this convergence of military, secret military technology and operations and popular culture. I feel like a lot of the really good UFO stuff, I mean, we've agreed already in previous podcasts that maybe 80 to 90% of the UFO sightings can be dismissed either as hoaxes or misidentification or something else. There is, though, this good set of UFO sightings, the stuff that really can't be easily explained away. And we discussed the Mantel incident in a, in a previous episode where he encounters this incredible ball-shaped metallic object hovering something like 75,000 feet in the sky. And now he's trying to figure out what it was. We subsequently have a sense of what that was. Uh, uh, it was most likely a skyhook balloon trying to detect whether the Soviets were detonating uh, nuclear weapons, testing their nuclear weapons. But it was such a secret project that nobody knew about it. And this one, this balloon malfunctions and dips down. And so it's interesting that it now makes... I've read this now in Annie Jacobson. I've I've read it in uh, Captain Ruppelt's report. I've read it in... Mirage Men, I think. So this this UFO sighting makes its rounds uh, in a lot of the literature that's produced at the time and afterward. Because certainly at the time, unless you were looped in on the secret stuff that was going on, it was an unexplainable phenomenon. A lot of people saw a giant metallic spherical type object hovering in the sky. And it resulted in and the death it, of a man. Yeah, which is, and, and, and not just, I, and sorry, I don't mean to say this in any value-laden sense, but in terms of an observer, not just any man, somebody who is a decorated fighter pilot, I think, not knowing the guy, uh, say, would not make the kind of mistake that he was going to risk his life chasing Venus or something. You know, yeah. the kind of ways that they, these kinds of sightings tend to get dismissed. Um, and then, of course, it's interesting to bring up Venus because that was, of course, the official statement from the Air Force saying, oh, he was chasing Venus. And the Air Force, when they put that out, they knew it was a lie. When when Ruppelt investigated yeah, so it, he knew it was a lie. Like, th- I usually just... believe things until I hear weather balloon or Venus. Right. Now those are the siren calls for like, oh, I should better look yeah. into this because if I know anything, it was not a weather balloon yeah. or Venus. It's never <laughs> Venus. So those are, it's interesting because of course, Jessup is making this claim. He doesn't have the advantage that we have which is being yeah. like, like 60 years later. 70 years, exactly, with a lot of declassified documents, a whole bunch of researchers who interviewed the people who were there at the time who are now allowed to talk. I mean, it is, we have a real advantage of history. And it's one of the reasons why, and Elena mentions this sometimes, that you are steadfast that you do not want to talk about a conspiracy that's happening right now because you want yeah. that little bit of time to happen so that we can spend some time reflecting and gathering information and evidence. Yeah, I mean, this is a bit of inside baseball, but among us as a group, we are having a debate whether to talk about uh, coronavirus conspiracies. And my position is that I don't yet know. I, I mean, not that I don't know what the conspiracies are or don't have my own opinions about which, whether they're credible or not, but I feel like when you have 10, 15, 20 years of history to put a, an event into context, it really does change things. It really does change um, how much you can say authoritatively about it. It gives you a lot of other uh, data to go on, other researchers. This is what I like about the 50s and 60s, is right. that it, we, we precisely have this distance, right? Anyway, sorry, tangents galore, because... Because we don't get don't a chance to talk to people the anymore. Experiment. Yeah, exactly. That too. <laughs> All right. So a couple of the other claims, getting back on track. Jessup claims that the aliens possess far superior powers to us, of course. If they can get here, they must have better technology. And he's also worried that the Russians may have captured a UFO, in which case we are in serious trouble. And again, plays into this sort of Cold War terror. Now, the book was not a bestseller when it came out, uh, in part because there was a massive glut of UFO books coming out at about the same time. But we can say that the book was apparently read by at least one person, because a few months after A Case for the UFO is published, Jessup starts to receive dozens of letters from a man named Carlos Miguel Allende. And Allende has quite a story to tell, if these letters are anything to go by. Because according to the letters, Allende was in the Merchant Marines in World War II, 
and he provides his sailor ID number as proof. Z, or for our American listeners, Z, 416175. And Allende claims that he has information that Jessup needs to be aware of, and that information concerns some of the claims that Jessup has been making in his book. In particular, it concerns Einstein. Allende asserts that Einstein had made far more progress into developing a grand unified theory that would combine electromagnetism, gravity, and weak and strong interactions into one overall explanation than is commonly known. Because officially, this has yet to be done even in our time. We have not come up with this grand unified theory that explains all of the forces in physics in the universe. But Allende said that Einstein had managed to do it, but he kept it hidden from the public because Einstein had become so horrified by the destructive nature of human beings. However, according to these letters, the U.S. Navy was let in in on the secret of this grand unified theory, and apparently in October of 1943, they decided to put the theory into practice on a destroyer escort ship named the USS Eldridge at a Philadelphia shipyard. Using a magnetic field generated by a massive electric current, the Eldridge was going to become the first ever invisible ship, which would keep it safe from the German U-boats that were sinking so much Allied shipping during the Battle of the Atlantic. Because, of course, this is 1943. Uh, at this point, the Germans have a massive submarine fleet, which is lethal to Allied shipping. They were trying to come up with all sorts of different technologies to try to combat it. And apparently, according to Allende, using Einstein's theory, they were able to figure out how to make a ship actually invisible. So according to these letters, the experiment went badly wrong. The ship did disappear, but then, weirdly, it reappeared briefly at another shipyard in Norfolk, about 270 miles south, and then appeared back in Philadelphia minutes later. So it didn't just disappear, it teleported in space. From the crew's perspective, apparently, it was an absolute nightmare. They experienced the horror of watching the world around them vanish. And for a moment, they existed in kind of a half-existing, half-non-existing state. And then afterwards, there were lingering effects. Some of them experienced a side effect that Allende called freezing. They would become stuck in a moment of time and would stay perfectly still, unable to move for minutes or hours or days or weeks. Some of them froze in time and also caught on fire. And apparently one of the unfortunate sailors burned alive for 18 days while being unable to move or scream. Uh, Here's a quotation from one of the letters. To give you a feel for the, the writing style and also the content. So this is from one of the letters to Jessup from Allende. I speak of time for deep frozen men are not aware of time as we know it. They are like semi-comatose person who live, breathe, look and feel but still are unaware of so utterly many things as to constitute another world to them. A man in an ordinary freeze is aware of time, sometimes acutely so. But they are never aware of time, as you or I am aware of it. The first deep freeze, as I said, took six months to rectify. It also took five million dollars worth of electronic equipment and a special ship berth. If around or near the Philadelphia Navy, and you see a group of sailors in the act of putting their hands upon a fellow or upon thin air, observe the digits and appendages of the stricken man. If they seem to waver as though through a heat mirage, go quickly and put your hands upon him. For that man is the most desperate of men in the world. Not one of those men ever wanted all to become invisible. End quote. Apparently some of those men just walked off into nothingness and never returned. In addition, the letter writer claimed that after the experiment, a bar brawl started up in a local tavern bef- between a few sailors, and some of those sailors had been on the Eldridge during the experiment. To the shock and horror of the bar patrons and staff, during the fight, those Eldridge sailors started coming into and out of existence finally disappearing entirely. Just imagine what that would have looked like. You go to, you take a swing at a guy with a bottle and then, poof, he's gone. And then he appears and he punches you. Can I get a bit of clarification on this freezing in time thing? Sure. So maybe, is it that, (laughs) is it that, let's say we're, we're, uh, you and I are uh, sailors on a ship and I freeze in time. Does that mean you see me frozen? It means that I would see you not moving. And then you would experience right. your relative time differently than me. Uh, it would either stretch out into an eternity or it would seem like no time at all had passed. I mean, it sounds unpleasant. Oh, well, I don't, I'm not sure how helpful this is. Here, 
besides all of the the priming you've done in in sort of saying, okay, look, I don't think it's a great book, and you know, um, giving me examples of a UFO sighting that you and I both agree we don't believe was an actual UFO sighting. So I'm I'm predisposed not to believe this guy. But then there's then there's something else that, uh, and I'm just curious about your take on this. I am, um, and I don't think any of our listeners would ever confuse me for, you know, theoretical physicist of any sort. And I clearly have no competence in any of that field whatsoever. Trust me, I have done the test to prove that I do not have competence in these fields. Uh, but my understanding, and this is this was something I was also been noticing with some of the early UFO literature, is that the science is a little hokey. And here too, it, this seems a little bit like a kind of a uh, science fiction version of time travel. Um, you remember those those films uh, or you know, whatever TV shows where somebody has the power to make time stop, but they don't. I think I always thought that one was of really... those was uh, Saved by the Bell. Oh yeah, yeah. I think a character in Saved by the Bell <laughs> so, could do that. I always thought that was the coolest thing, right? Well, it would but be then, the most amazing superpower if it was real. Yeah. But then I, I, I got a little too literal or just obsessive about this concept, and I started to really think about it. And eventually it occurred to me that if time stood still, that would mean that things like atoms and molecules would stand still, right? So you couldn't breathe in an environment. Even if you yourself somehow miraculously could create a time shield you can't breathe the air out there because it ain't moving. Yeah, you wouldn't be able to move right? your arm. You wouldn't be able to travel through space. Exactly. So some of this stuff, like it seems kind of like this is what how it would be if we could only do this. And the question is simply, we don't have the technology. But it strikes me that if we did have the technology to do this, let's just put, I, I, I completely agree just for uh, argument's sake that we maybe theoretically could stop time. I just think it would look very different. And this is what I'm wondering about with these people who just suddenly freeze. I mean, that's what it seems like it would look like to me if somebody stopped in time. But if they actually stopped in time, wouldn't they essentially disappear? Yeah. And like, wouldn't they just be gone, gone? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Although, I mean, that also happens in I'm this description. Still in time. Right, exactly. That happens to the boat, right? Yeah, it happens so to the boat, boat and it happens to the barroom brawlers. And it happens to the barroom brawlers, and the sailors, though, are still standing there. Well, They're just I'll, frozen. We'll come back to all of these, <laughs> because I have to say, this is the point at which the story gets weird. Oh, we're still in the normal part. We're still the in the normal part. This is still the setup. This isn't the weird part of the story yet. <laughs> okay, okay, I'll hold my, I'll hold my Okay, so now... It's the spring of 1957. Jessup has been looking into these these claims, but he can't really establish any. He can't find any verification. And so he, he, he's starting to move on to other subjects. But in the spring of 1957, Jessup is contacted by officers of the Office of Naval Research, Captain Sidney Sherby and Commander George Hoover. Now, I've looked into these men. I've seen interviews with these men. They were part of the Office of Naval Research. And one of the things they were working on is kind of the Navy version of Project Blue Book. Oh. So these are guys. The alien. Yeah, yeah. Alien stuff, UFO stuff. And so Jessup gets contacted by these two guys. <clears throat> they were contacting him because they had been sent a brown paper envelope with the words Happy Easter written on it. And inside the envelope, they found a copy of Jessup's book, A Case for the UFO. And written in the margins of the book were notes in three different ink colors and three different handwriting styles. It appeared to be a conversation between three people. Imagine if you and me and Elena were all reading the same copy of a book and we were passing around back and forth and we were making notes mm. to each other and we were kind of like having a conversation in the notes in the margins of the book. That's sort of what this is. And the writers, whoever they are, sometimes agree with Jessup's conclusions and they sometimes disagree with them. And as extraordinary as the claims Jessup made in the book were, the claims made by the mystery note writers were even more so. They're talking about uh, pre-Ice Age human civilizations, magnetic propulsion travel. They reference the Philadelphia experiment, uh, with one of them writing at one point, quote, U.S. Navy's force field experiments, 1943, October, produced invisibility of crew and ship, 
fearsome results so terrifying as to fortunately halt further research, end quote. Most interestingly, the writers were making claims that there were two alien civilizations that had taken an interest in the Earth. Those aliens were referred to as the letters LM and the letters SM. So there was a lot of references to LMs and SMs, and I don't know what either of those stand for. Although at one point, one of the writers references little men and capitalizes both words and hyphenates them. So maybe that's LM, little men. Maybe that's what it stands for. I don't know. Another section, they reference Lemurian Muanina. So maybe, I don't know, basically. Anyway, here's a little taste for you of both the claims made in the margins and uh, the writing style of these mystery note takers. Quote, Father, aviator, diplomat, sailor, soldier, and lawyer, and common men, all were necessary to LM's scrutiny of our too rapidly growing culture. No man wearing hobnail boots or pleats on shoes has ever been known to be stolen, neither a man in a cave under earth. If a man can keep his mind as a lifeless clod, he can escape detention from the LMs or SMs in this way. They feel you out in the country. In cities, listen to birds. If birds don't sing, be ready. Uh, interesting. Something strikes me about LM and SM. So when is this book being sent to? 1957. 1957. Okay. So I'm referencing here something I was recently reading in Mirage Men, where he talks, the author talks about the evolution of the, the mythology. And I don't mean this dismissively, but sort of the story around alien encounters uh, with human beings and how it sort of changes over time. And by, I think it's, I guess the seventies or eighties, you have, and I think it's also in the air force, a technical term to refer to aliens. And those are EBEs, okay. uh, extraterrestrial biological entities. Okay. I thought that was interesting just off the top that, of course, the you know the military establishment will come up with some kind of vague acronym. It's got to be an I'm acronym. Just going to call them. It's got to be an acronym. So in that sense, LM and SM seem to be in that same vein. And interestingly, though, not the acronym EBE. Whatever uh, it, 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 Jess, uh, Morris Jessup is referencing, it's not what ends up becoming the kind of official discourse later in UFO mythology. What I also found interesting, just in what you're saying, is that in official UFO lore or kind of consensus story, there are indeed three separate races or, or types of aliens. Like they come from different places with different interests. There's a benign type that kind of look after us. They maybe were the ones that initially seeded life on Earth. So they're, they're kind of like, I don't know, our zookeepers or something. I remember or benevolent... Sure. Benevolent zookeepers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> then there's the, uh, then there's the, the gray aliens, and they are into like cow mutilation and probing people and doing probing. Yeah. And then there's another group, not that people don't really go into. They seem to be more into our resources. Uh, they want they kind of want to do away with us and take over. So again, this notion that there's like two separate groups of aliens, potentially with different interests. I mean, that's what this refers to, right? That yeah. SM and LM. And exactly as you point out, uh, according to the notes that I've read, because I've read both the original book and then the book with these weird writings in the margins, the writings you in the would. margins, they, they appear to be saying that the LMs are benevolent and peaceful and the SMs are sinister. Okay. Now, I should also point out at this point that there are no equations in the margins. There's no testable claims. There's no specific explanations. There's nothing that you could actually use to verify any of this. There's just these sort of weird references to aliens and some kind of superpower. When I was reading a quote from it, you might have found the style kind of familiar. Jessup definitely found it familiar because as he's reading it, not only is the style the same as those letters he was getting from Allende, but the handwriting style, one of the handwriting styles is the same as the style of Carlos Miguel Allende's. So Jessup says to the Navy guys who are asking him, dude, what is, what's going on? What is this about? He says, well, I've been getting these weird letters too. And it looks like the handwriting is the same. So he shows him some of the stuff from Allende. And then for reasons that I don't understand, I don't, first of all, understand why the Navy's taking this so seriously. 
I also don't understand why at this point then the Navy then contacts the Vero Manufacturing Company of Garland, Texas, and has them print 127 copies of this annotated version of Jessup's book. So are they taking it seriously because they believe the report about what happened to the Navy ship? I don't know. And certainly they're not very forthcoming to Jessup. But just having Navy officers show up at your house. Sure. I mean, and this is a pattern that we've seen before. And in fact, this pattern's about to get, as this pattern normally does, it's about to get sort of sad because we've seen this so many times where somebody is investigating UFOs, they get some kind of official interaction with officers from the Navy, from the Air Force, from the FBI. And then immediately, what happens to their life after that? Well, I was just going to ask you, is uh, Morris Jessup the first Paul Benowitz? Is he the first sort of like set up fall guy for the the Navy here to see if they can screw around with people by by planting information about aliens and pretending they're taking this seriously? I mean, that's an excellent. That's an excellent question. And for listeners who might not have come across our previous episode on Paul Benowitz, this is worth uh, talking about very briefly. But there was a man, Paul Benowitz, who in the 1970s started seeing strange sights in the sky. He was visited by an official Air Force officer, a guy called Richard Doty. And Doty told him that basically what he was seeing was UFOs and aliens and that there was going to be an alien attack. Now, the truth was, of course, those weren't UFOs or aliens. Those were Air Force top secret aircraft. And Doty was just planting that to throw Benowitz off so that he would be discredited and nobody would listen to him. And we know what happened to Benowitz. Well, that's it. I mean, for our listeners who didn't catch that episode, Paul Benowitz uh, descends into uh, psychosis and he loses his business that he had started. His family relationships break down. And I think he is institutionalized in the 90s. And dies in an institution eventually. Mm-hmm. And so, and so, so this, is an, this is earlier than that. <clears throat> But I think you raise a really yeah. important question. Is this like a kind of a, a, a psychological operation that they're doing? And I, I don't know. Maybe as we continue along, we'll be able to figure it out. Here's my question. Right. So on the one hand, Jessup could be a precursor to uh, what happens to Paul Benowitz and, and people like him. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, thinking back to another podcast that we did, uh, when we're thinking, uh, when we did that on Stargate, there's been examples where people uh, got played within the military establishment, where they just bought a hoax, right? I mean, I'm thinking about Stargate and those researchers being taken in by uh, Yuri, Yuri Geller, Geller. A, yeah. a, a stage magician, right? Who basically says, "Look, I can, I can read minds and and bend spoons." And the, I don't know, I don't remember how much the CIA put out on this, but they spent a lot of money researching the possibility of weaponizing psychokinetic abilities. So it strikes me that there's two possibilities going on here. One, somebody actually took this stuff seriously. Like you got UFO believers or people believing in time travel in the Navy, and they're like, we should look into this, even people in high position. Or people are playing Morris Jessup and seeing if they can do some kind of psychological operation and what would come out of that. And, and unfortunately, I, like the research we have done indicates that either of those possibilities is entirely possible. Yeah. Uh, do you do you lean towards one or the other so far? Or are we just going to explore? I lean towards these Navy officers getting this book and just saying, what is this? We got to look into this. Okay. Like, what is even happening Okay. Here? That's the one I think. Okay. But, but the one that you raise, it's a possibility that it's a psychological operation— Again, it's not without precedent. It could have happened. So regardless of why those Navy officers showed up, his life, as we've seen before in the situation, starts to unravel. His books aren't selling that well. His new books are being rejected by publishers. His family starts to fall apart. In 1958, his wife leaves him. He gets into a car accident, leaves him with chronic injuries and pain. But despite all this, he pushes on with this research. At this point, he has become obsessed with this idea that perhaps these U.S. sailors were subjected to this horrifying experiment in 1943. On April 19, 1959, he calls his friend and fellow researcher Manson Valentine, and he arranges to meet with him the following day. According to Jessup on the phone call, 
Jessup has learned something extremely important about the Philadelphia experiment, and he needs to tell Valentine about it in person. But on April 20th, the next day, he doesn't make that appointment. Instead, he's found sitting in his car in Dade County, Florida, asphyxiated from the engine fumes. There's a hose running from the exhaust pipe into the window of his car, pumping in carbon monoxide. Uh, It is considered a suicide. Given that you have read a manual on ways of that the United States military organization here, I don't mean the army, but just the whole security apparatus might do something like this. Is that one of the ways that a extrajudicial killing could be organized? Was that in a CIA handbook? It is certainly one of the methods that you can use to kill somebody and make it appear that uh, they have taken their own life. But I will say this about this, because, of course, immediately this this causes a lot of people to say, well, he must have been onto something then. Like, that, that can't be a coincidence that he says he's got this important information and then he, he's found dead. But the thing is, uh, I saw an interview with his daughter, and his daughter recalled that when she was told of his death, she didn't ask the question, how did it happen? She asked the question, how did he do it? Ah. So it, it yeah, seems okay. that... Possibly because of the way that his life had been going, it, like his family was not surprised, tragically, that, that things ended this way. Mm. So mm. while it's always suspicious when somebody dies in a moment like this, at the same time, his own family was not particularly suspicious of it. And they were more just sad and regretful. Mm. But, of course, just imagine the speculation that this fires up. Carlos Allende, who wrote those letters and also wrote some of the scribblings in the book, he becomes like this super intriguing figure to the UFO community, in large part because he's not around to to talk. And people in this community start to consider the possibility that Allende himself might have been an alien. And this, the Varro edition of Jessup's book with all the scribblings in it, it achieves like a holy grail level of speculation and interest. And at this point, a bunch of people come forward claiming to be Allende, but none of them can produce the paperwork with his sailor ID number on it to back up their claims. And so they're dismissed. Mm. In 1969, a man walks into the Tucson office of the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization with a copy of the Vero edition of the Jessup book. And he tells the people there, I am Carlos Allende, and I gotta be honest, this whole thing was a hoax that got wildly out of hand. Oh. But despite that, if anything, the story starts to build momentum in the zeitgeist. In 1974, an author named Charles Berlitz writes a book called The Bermuda Triangle, which is hugely influential in popularizing the idea that 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 area of the world is supernaturally dangerous and weird stuff happens there and unexplained things possibly caused by the destruction of Atlantis. And that book briefly mentions the Philadelphia experiment. In 1979, Berlitz and ufologist William Moore publish a book titled The Philadelphia Experiment, which is largely drawn from the correspondence between Allende and Jessup. In that book, they treat Allende as a mysterious and possibly extraterrestrial being. Quote, It is still virtually impossible to say very much about him with any degree of certainty. Were Carlos Allende and his correspondence representatives of an extraterrestrial power which took root on Earth centuries ago and has long since established an advanced underground culture? But actually, he wasn't mysterious at all. There was a researcher named Robert Gorman, and he tracked down Allende using the return address on some of the correspondence, which you'd think somebody should have thought of. And (laughs) Gorman finds a man who claims to be Allende's father. And this man who claims to be Allende's father has a sailor ID certificate with the serial number Z416175 to prove it. This is the guy. It turns out that the sailor wasn't named Carlos Miguel Allende. His name was Carl Meredith Allen. Now, he was described by his family, and I've seen interviews with his, his siblings, as very intelligent but not particularly focused or applied. He apparently had a habit of, like, scribbling notes and margins of books. He had the habit of playing practical jokes. And then, like, this guy, Carl Meredith Allen, was tracked down by researchers and interviewed. And I got to say, he didn't appear to be much of an alien. He appears to more be a hoaxer. Just to uh, make sure that I'm I'm following the story as it's meant to be uh, understood. Allende's, or... uh, Allen. Sorry, what? Allen, thank you. Uh, He's the guy, most likely, who mails the book. He's the guy okay. who wrote the so letters to Jessup. He's the guy that wrote right. the notes in the margins of the book and the guy that sent the book to the Navy. Okay, got it. 
What's interesting is that this happens in 1979, which is the same time that this book on the Philadelphia experiment comes out. So in 1979, we've got this wildly speculative book that talks about like Atlantis and stuff. And then we have an actual researcher finding this, this man, Allende. Which of those two do you think was more wildly popular? The wildly speculative one. Yeah, it was. It was a huge hit. And, of course, this actual research about who Allende actually was is pretty much ignored because it's not as good a story. People don't want to believe it as much. In 1984, they actually make a big movie of the book. And this introduces uh, a lot of other aspects to the story. Not only now are the sailors freezing in time and disappearing, but they're actually they're fused to the, to the metal of the, of the ship. And when the ship reappears, there's like bits of arms and bits of heads sticking out of, out of the, the gangplank. Is that a sailing thing? Uh, Dude, I assumed you would know. <laughs> yeah, you would think that. You know no. everything about airplanes. Like, but ships, no. Um, what's, what's the name of the movie? Uh, the movie is called The Philadelphia Experiment, and I just watched it. Uh-huh. It's Recommendable? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> In 1990, a man called Alfred uh, Bielek comes forward, and he claims to be one of the sailors who was on the Eldridge. And he said that what happened was he actually fell overboard while it was disappearing, and he was transported in time to 1983. This actually is exactly the plot of the film from 1984. And when asked, he said, yeah, I didn't actually remember this happened to me until I saw the film. And so now we've reached that problem area where it's reached pop culture, and now it's almost impossible to separate the pop culture ideas from the history. In 1994, in the Journal of Scientific Exploration, there was an astronomer and ufologist named Jacques Vallée, And he writes uh, an article called Anatomy of a Hoax, the Philadelphia Experiment 50 Years Later. And in this article, which I'll send to you because I think you'll find fascinating, because it has lists in it and you love lists. (laughs) He discusses his frustration with the widespread influence of hoaxes on UFO studies, because this is one of those guys who wants to genuinely get to the the bottom of this matter. And he's very frustrated by all these circulating hoaxes. And he argues that hoaxes acquire this sort of life of their own Sometimes even after the hoaxer himself comes out clean and says, you know what, this is a hoax. The hoax continues after the hoaxer is gone. One of the examples that Valet uses is the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Right, okay, yeah. Which had a horrifying impact in the 20th century. And this is a part you'll like as a person who loves lists. Valet lists 13 features that help a hoax survive. So let's go through some of these. One... A precise and amazing fact, something that really sticks in the memory, something that really sticks in the mind, something that you can really conceive of and imagine. In this case, a destroyer disappearing and reappearing. Like that's a thing that you can have in your head and it's an image. Uh, Two interesting witnesses. In this case, we've got this man of mystery, Carlos Allende, who is sort of like, he's not accessible. He sort of flits in and out. He's hard to pin down. Three, Claims of verifiable evidence, not verifiable evidence itself, but just claims that it exists. Four, what uh, Valet calls dramatic sequels. In this case, he argues that it would be unlikely that this story would have gotten the legs it had without the death of Morris Jessup. That Morris Jessup's death is the thing that sort of provides, uh, ironically, a new life to the story. Five, uh, high-tech believability, basically this sort of, it's almost like a screenwriter's tool where you can just put in a bunch of scientific mumbo-jumbo. Six, involvement of visible scientists, in this case, the referencing of Einstein, which is a scientist people have heard of. Seven, official secrecy, the involvement of the the Navy, which is something that genuinely happened. Uh, There's nothing that gets a good conspiracy going like ideas of secrecy. Eight, relevance to a general audience. Nine, validation by credible researchers. 10, this is one that I want to get to for a bit, media amplification. Because we're eventually going to talk about things like mass panics. Mm-hmm. And media amplification is such a key aspect of promoting panics and hoaxes and things like that. Do you remember when the Malaysian airliner crashed in the ocean? Yeah, I do indeed, yes. Do you remember how wildly irresponsible the mainstream news networks were about that crash? I remember, I think it was on CNN, they actually entertained the notion that a mini black hole had opened up. Yeah. On the news. I like, mean, was it a mini black hole? News. Yeah. You know, uh, it was really quite astounding what they were filling the airwaves with. 
media amplification is central, but so as so is as was on that list uh, the weighing in of experts, yep. who who give it a kind of an official credibility, even if they say stuff like "Yeah, there's nothing to see here," it's already more weirdly more credible now than if nobody says anything. Yeah. So like, there's just the fact but, that serious people are looking at it, even if the serious people dismiss it. You're still yeah. like, well, I don't know, serious people, we're looking into this. It's a bit like when a cop says nothing to see here. Yeah, then you know, oh, there's got to you know, be something to see here. It's like, now I'm interested. Maybe he's right in this case. Maybe there yeah. genuinely is, but now I got to know. You know, Now, because there was an official involved, because I'm reflecting on the role of the media in generating a lot of the phenomena that we're actually interested in while a lot of we've talked about this a lot of the phenomenon has the kernel of truth but once it hits this kind of pop culture dimension a lot of it is mediated through the media and you hear about this stuff from whatever newspapers television shows the internet youtube and that list of how to sustain a hoax seems also uh, could be more generalized as uh, as sort of how to sustain any bad idea mm-hmm. or or what what in the biz we used to call a zombie idea you know something that has been dismissed and yet still manages to keep, shamble around yeah even if somebody who perpetuated a hoax came out and said that you would have that in the last page of the paper yeah you know as opposed to the claim of the hoax being in the front page of the paper and i think part and, of the reason why people are so reluctant to believe that hoaxes aren't true is comes in at number 11 relevance to believers people who have an interest in believing something like this if this helps to support their theories they're going to be more likely to believe it uh number 12 you're gonna like this is right up your alley yeah. an adequate socioeconomic framework hmm. in the 1970s when this story really starts to take off Like in the 1950s, it doesn't really gain that much traction except in the UFO community. But in the 1970s, the story becomes very widespread and everybody's believing it. What are some of the things that were happening in the 1970s that maybe left people more willing to believe a story this extraordinary? We've made this point before in our podcast that if the conspiracy didn't happen in the 50s, it happened in the 70s. I mean, we spend so much time in those two decades And so much was being revealed about the government in the 70s, revelations of wrongdoing that if you had mentioned it 10 years earlier, you would have been just laughed out of any kind of reasonable society, you know, as if the United States government is secretly abducting people and doing brainwashing experiments on them. I mean, it just is is utter absurdity. And then that, COINTELPRO, Watergate, um, MK Ultra, you know, what do you want? Like every, all of the nefarious stuff and more that was really the domain of very fringe notions about what the government was about and could just be so easily dismissed. And Suddenly now it's on the front pages of the New York Times and the Washington Post. Yeah. Because it turns out and it was I think true. There, there is a pretty dramatic loss of confidence. I think it's also you can couple it with things like a terrible war that's going nowhere that is just eating up the young in the United States, the Vietnam War, which at that point was the longest raging war in American history. You've had a lot of social unrest. You had, you know, the kind of crackdowns on the student movement at Berkeley and other places, tear gas, people killed, um, crackdown on civil rights movement. I mean, you know, a lot of people who were not directly affected by it might have been able to maintain this sort of naive distance and and not feel too concerned. But I think people who are really engaged in, and, and interested in this stuff or to somehow directly affected, I think there's a, majority, a, a certain kind of minority that really lost faith in their government. See, I told you you'd like number 12. Yeah, I didn't realize how much I did. <laughs> and then very quickly, number 13 is just hints at some kind of secret inside contact. Valet also provides us with countermeasures, what can we do to try to prevent this from happening to us? And he only has six. It's still a list, though. One, okay. disregard self-described experts. He's not denying that there is a realm of expertise. No, self-described experts. Self-described experts. So, so um, it's not that the neurosurgeon says, I'm an expert at you know, uh, being a neurosurgeon. That's not the issue. The issue is that this person has been accredited by 
institutions that we generally recognize. Okay, so so for example, if say Doctor Phil comes along on TV to talk about swimming pool deaths, maybe we can disregard his opinion because he is a self-described expert on that. That isn't he isn't a genuine expert on that. Right. Okay. Two, disregard the mass media, which doesn't necessarily have an interest in getting to the truth of something. It does, unfortunately, often have an interest in making something sort of more than it is to try to blow it up into a big, exciting story. Okay. Okay. Number three, I like this do we one have a lot. To, do we have to dismiss ourselves? Sorry. Are we, are we out of the game here? Um, it depends on what we're claiming. <laughs> the podcast that ended our podcast. <laughs> yeah. Number three, this is the one I like. Look for logical flaws. Right. Makes look, sense. Yep. yep. As a logician, that would be right up your alley. Number four, identify and remove irrelevant drama. Okay. So in this case, uh, it's not irrelevant because it was sad and tragic, but the fact that Jessup died didn't have anything to do with the Philadelphia experiment, necessarily, not that direct hmm. away. Uh, number five, discover and test independent sources of information. And six, disregard any claims of some kind of secret knowledge. Okay. Now I like that list. Yeah, it's a good list. It was, it's an interest. I'll lend you the, uh, I'll give you a copy of this. And it ends with a quote that I think we will end this part of the podcast with. The quote is this. When a hoax achieves the longevity to qualify for classification as either myth or legend, hope of stopping it almost may be abandoned. That's interesting. As soon as it sort of passes into that realm of the of the story that's told with hushed tones. This is no longer a story that we can look at. And it's a story that is so ensconced in our society. It it has penetrated our society to such a degree that it becomes sort of popular knowledge. And then at that point, how can you even research it anymore? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, as you discovered in in some of your research on this, right? Because exactly once it starts to merge with the popular culture uh, descriptions of the event, that the thread is lost. Now, you know, it's easier when there's just a few people interested in some bizarre event and you've got some maybe military records to back it up. Well, look at something like alien abduction, which we should talk about eventually. Anybody who has a story of alien abduction now has probably been exposed to the cultural idea of alien abduction through movies and television shows and, yeah. and yeah. so on. Yeah, it would be hard to disentangle sort of the the the, the role of priming and not quite planted memories, but, you know, the structure of what this experience is supposed to be like, the scaffold of the experience from anything that, you know, would genuinely happen to you. I mean, especially when we're dealing with memory, that's all reconstructed. So I think in the end, the Philadelphia experiment was fascinating for me to study. I got all sorts of good truth out of this story. As is often the case with these conspiracy claims, the truth wasn't in the claim itself. The truth was in what it showed us about ourselves that this claim was able to be as successful as it was. Because, I mean, think about it. We went through things like Cold War panic. We went through things like the 1970s anti-establishment movement, the the way that memes travel through society. I mean, it's still super useful to study, but in the end, I don't think it happened. And you know who else doesn't think it happened? The sailors on the USS Eldridge, who got together in 1999 for a reunion— all of whom said, that didn't happen. What are you talking about? So did anything happen? Like, yeah, like was there an explosion or I don't know, something went down on the ship. One of the things they were worried about in 1943 was the ships being vulnerable to magnetic mines. And so one of the things that they were experimenting on, top secret, was something called degaussing, which was using a massive uh, a generator in magnetic fields to basically eliminate the magnetic draw of a metal ship to those mines, thereby rendering it invisible to the magnetic mines. Uh, you take that story, you take some drunken sailors, and bang, you've got yourself a Philadelphia experiment. Right, 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 right. Huh. Interesting. Now, we're going to do something we don't normally do. Because I've got like an, ah. an addendum to this. You mentioned earlier that we are not quantum physicists. No, we are not. But the idea of teleportation is so fascinating to me. I talked to a quantum physicist and I asked him his yeah, opinion. Yeah, we have. Because we have yeah. a friend who is a quantum physicist. 
We have we have a friend who's a quantum physicist. Let's see what he's got to say. So if you are curious about the conspiracy part portion of the Philadelphia experiment, that part I think is done. If you are curious about the nature of teleportation, stick around. I'm about to get all quantum all up in here. All right, I love it. Okay, it's time now to do a deep dive into the physics behind the Philadelphia experiment. As Lee and I mentioned earlier in the episode, neither of us are quantum theorists, but we do know a quantum theorist, and he has provided me with some excellent notes here. And so I'm going to just sort of go through some of his main points and apply them to this situation, because we didn't really get into it in the podcast, but a lot of the reason why I think that the Philadelphia experiment is a hoax and not a genuine event that occurred not only is it because of the socio-political aspect, but because of the physics in it. So according to my friend, Dr. DeLeo, teleportation for relatively simple particles, things like photons, things like cesium atoms, this is, it is possible. It's a real technique that is being done, and it uses the property of quantum entanglement. Now, quantum entanglement is uh, what... Einstein referred to as spooky action at a distance. It's a correlation between two particles or systems where it doesn't matter how far apart they are. If you know your physics, you know that the speed of light is kind of a, a, a universal speed limit. Nothing can travel faster than the speed of light, including information. However, the reason that Einstein found this so spooky is that with quantum entanglement, distance doesn't matter, and communication can be done instantaneously between entangled particles. Even if one entangled particle is in a different galaxy, if you interact or alter the first particle, in that other galaxy, instantaneously, that other particle will also be affected. Now, the thing about this is that this connection, as astounding as that is, is that it's incredibly delicate and fragile, any interaction with the outside environment, any noise will disrupt it. This is called decoherence. And this is with unbelievably simple things like cesium atoms or photons. So imagine something as unbelievably complicated as a mosquito or a worm or a destroyer escort like the USS Eldridge, which is filled with human beings who themselves are extremely complicated systems. So the larger you get away from those tiny, tiny, simple systems, the larger the chance of instability and decoherence is. So basically, if you're trying to transport something like a human being, the, the problem of instability becomes so astronomical that basically it becomes almost a, a complete certainty that you're going to break that entanglement effect. It's just too complex a system to maintain that delicate connection. Uh, there's another issue that I think is maybe a little bit easier to understand, at least for me, and that is teleportation isn't about taking the specific matter that something is made of and moving it to a different location. Instead, it's about scanning the information of that matter and then transmitting that information and then rebuilding it with new matter in the new location. Basically, the way teleportation would work is, if it was possible... Like, if I was teleporting myself, I would be scanned completely. A computer would know where every single atom in my body was. Every single one. That information would then be transmitted to the new location, and I would be replicated with every single atom in exactly the same place, which would basically copy me. Now, at that exact moment where I'm being copied in the new location, I have to be destroyed in the old location. But because of the first law of thermodynamics, matter can't be completely destroyed or created, which means that when I teleport, I've got to use matter that's in the new location, and in my old location, something's going to happen to all the matter that used to be me. And this is what Dr. DeLeo says in my notes here. If you wanted to teleport something the size of a ship, you'd need an equivalent amount of matter near the ship and equivalent amount of entangled matter at the destination point to become the copy of the ship. Aside from the problem of a stable connection, after teleportation, the original ship is destroyed into a massive mound of formless stuff. May be hard to miss evidence-wise. And so for these reasons, Dr. DeLeo argues he thinks that it is unlikely that a ship teleported 
in Philadelphia in 1943. Now, I just have to ask him about what his thoughts are on anti-gravity and flying saucers. 